It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a cornucopia of offerings from the latest issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on this week's menu, we have priests preaching the gospel of entrepreneurship, mafiosi business innovators, and a battery that works inside the body. But first, Brave New Worlds was our cover line this week, as our leader laid out how space is once again the focus for thrilling new discoveries. It may turn out to be a bare and barren rock. The fact that liquid water could be flowing across the surface of the planet just discovered orbiting Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to the Sun, does not mean that any actually is, nor for that matter that it has an atmosphere. The fact that water and air, if present, could make this new world habitable does not mean that it is, in fact, a home to alien life but it might be. In the thrill of such possibilities sits all that is most promising about the exploration of space. Our leader argued that space has of late become a bit dull. All the solar system's planets have been visited by probes. The hard graft of teasing out their secrets now offers less immediate spectacle. But now that is changing. The technological progress that has put supercomputers into the pockets of half the world has made it possible to do a lot more in orbit with much smaller spacecraft. They're making space interesting again. After all, there is no objective need for people to colonise space or for them to look at planets in other solar systems in order to answer questions about life's place in the universe. Some, though, see the possibilities, stand in awe, and start making plans. They may not succeed. The planets may turn out to be barren rocks. Infinite space, in the end, might be just a nutshell's worth of emptiness. But, then again, it might not. It's time to go now from learning about the heavens to getting there with the help of Zimbabwe's Prosperity Church, where some pastors are arguing it's as simple as paying the price of admission. The booming voice of Apostle Rodney Chipayera, the pastor of the Kingdom Prosperity Ministries, fills a decrepit cinema-turned-church in Harare, Zimbabwe's capital. Yes, times are tough, he tells his congregants, who sit in broken chairs, wearing their Sunday best. The country may be bust, but if you stop tithing, giving a full tenth of your income to his church, you will be cursed. Belief is booming in Zimbabwe, and so is the business that comes with it. Some of the more enterprising priests sell miracles. Blessed ballpoint pens help you pass exams. 
Miracle Bricks will help you acquire your own home. Churches, the only business in Zimbabwe that's growing, scoffs a journalist. However, there are limits to the people's indulgence. Bishop Roger Jeffrey, who founded a church in a poor Harare suburb eight years ago, says he used to get about $2,000 a month from his congregation. Nowadays, donations have halved. We must encourage them to be entrepreneurs, he says. To help things along, an upcoming church conference will include lessons on starting a business. No one wants to be poor, says Bishop Jeffrey. Poverty is the devil. But if you're trying to show your piety through prosperity, you need to be sure your profits aren't lost in translation, as we find out in our Asia section, where the Japanese government is looking to tighten a loose nut in its economic machine. Its buses and trains arrive on the dot. Its engineers are famously precise. But when it comes to English, Japan is uncharacteristically sloppy. Signs are often misspelled. Taxi drivers point at phrase books to communicate with foreigners. Shops that take an English name to be trendy often get it horribly wrong. Witness Poop Dick, a second hand cosmetics outlet. So, our article said, the government is planning to revolutionise their English teaching system. All this, it is hoped, will help Japan play a bigger role in a world where English is the lingua franca. And particularly important to the government of Shinzo Abe, English is needed to boost the economy. However, tweaks to the education system alone will not be enough. Cultural barriers abound. Many Japanese don't see the need to use English because they rarely travel abroad and work in jobs that don't require it. Traditionalists eager to maintain the purity of Japanese culture would be happy for things to stay that way. And that's not the only issue. Kensako Yoshida, a professor at Sophia University in Tokyo, reckons the biggest obstacle is a lack of confidence. Many Japanese are so embarrassed by the inevitable mistakes that a non native speaker makes that they prefer not to try at all. And of course, Mr. Yoshida's solution is characteristically no nonsense. We need to accept that we don't have to talk like native speakers, says Mr. Yoshida. We just have to communicate. And what better way to communicate than radio as we inspect the spoils of Economist Radio in the last week? On our Money Talks podcast, we explored how the sharing economy works in practice. The question, I think, is are we becoming less nice? You know, Uber and TaskRabbit and Amazon, these all seem like amazing things, but is there a hidden cost? And our Babbage show delved deeper into facial recognition software. So I can take a picture of you, or I can get a picture of you from somewhere else off the internet, and I can put it into this app, and it can tell me who you are with about 70% accuracy. Our Economist Asks show explored what we really know about voters, including the intersection of politics, voting, and sex. Someone wrote to us complaining. She said she was a UKIP voter, and, and her sex life was great with her husband, and therefore our research was, was wrong. And the, the temptation, obviously, was to write back and say, well, either A, you're an outlier, or B, maybe your husband's a Lib Dem, because the <laughs> research showed that they were absolutely filthy. And the week ahead looked at the Colombian peace deal that's been a very long time coming. 
The most contentious part of the agreement really is the agreement on on sort of transitional justice, how the various people who've committed war crimes will be treated. And that's certainly one of the things that probably held people up. Now, like a number of questionable exports before us, we're leaving Colombia and ending up in the hands of their spiritual cousins, the Italian mafia, where our Schumpeter column in our business section laid bare the surprising savoir-faire of Neapolitan gangsters who make up Italy's feared Camorra. One of the most striking things about the Camorra is how good they are at business. The operation, as our article pointed out, is efficient as well as ruthless. They do some things outstandingly well. Operating outside Italy's growth-killing labour rules, the Camorra can be fleet-footed. They can swiftly assemble a workforce of whatever size is needed or shift from one line of business to another in a flash. They are best in class when it comes to renewing talent and ideas. Of course, mafiosi aren't always good for business. They are also responsible for a widening circle of economic devastation. The trade in drugs that swells their coffers also ruins lives. And they hardly reap unqualified reward. The Camorra themselves pay a high price too. The street soldiers live miserable lives, typically ending up dead injured or in prison before they reach middle age. Those at the top are constantly on their guard against being rubbed out by rivals or arrested by the police. Our article ended with some advice for Eurozone leaders formulating a plan to rebuild the European project, find a plan that allows innovation to thrive outside the mafia economy. To be successful, any such plan must make it easier to create legal businesses and thus likelier that the management genius displayed by the likes of the Camorra is directed towards the creative side of creative destruction. Waving goodbye to our friends in organised crime, our menu moves on to an article in our science section that makes an offer we can't refuse, a new kind of battery with an unusual ingredient. Since their invention two centuries ago, batteries have been made from many things. Until recently, though, no one had tried melanin, the pigment that darkens skin and protects it against ultraviolet light. But, as he reported this week at a meeting of the American Chemical Society in Philadelphia, Christopher Bettinger of Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh has now done just that. The advantage? Such a battery could be safely used inside the human body itself. Being a normal ingredient of bodies, melanin is not toxic. If melanin were to leak out of an implanted medical device, it would simply be mopped up by enzymes. What's more, the experiments suggest innovation in battery technology even beyond their medical potential. One of the experimental models his team produced, that containing magnesium, could be recharged. Given the abundance and cheapness of magnesium, that may be useful information for battery engineers seeking to outdo modern lithium-ion batteries. If so, then melanin or something like it might find itself in very heavy demand indeed. And speaking of heavy demand, The Economist inbox was overflowing this week, so let's head to the letters page and hear what some of our readers had to say. Andrew Work in Hong Kong wanted to set us straight about Ultimate Frisbee. Ultimate Frisbee is a real thing, not an oddity requiring quotes around it, as if it were a strange metaphor of a sport – It is recognised by the International Olympic Committee. It may be time to update your style guide to include this magnificent sport. It is definitely time to surrender the quotes. 
It truly is ultimate. And in our ultimate letter, Peter Bradshaw in Alaska told us about how, by way of Frank Zappa, the economist had led him to jazz. As an aficionado of most forms of music over sixty years, I still surprise myself in my struggle to appreciate jazz. Amused by Frank Zappa's quote at the beginning of your piece, I listened to several tracks by the band The Comet Is Coming. The music was interesting and reminiscent of early tracks by Pink Floyd, including Interstellar Overdrive, which Pink Floyd played and Zappa jammed on at the Festival d'Amougie in 1969. So does that mean I have always enjoyed jazz but did not know it? And I too love jazz. Improvisational, unpredictable. It can go on as long as it likes. Unfortunately, our tasting menu's not like that. So we move to our final story in our books and art section, where an article explored the changing relationship between Hollywood and war in the Gulf. About a decade ago, a series of earnest and mostly dull Hollywood films weighed the cost of America's wars in the Middle East. These downbeat dramas were followed by a generation of action movies which fetishized the danger of being a soldier in Afghanistan and Iraq. But more recently, Hollywood's embrace of war in the Middle East has shifted again. Its latest dispatches from the front line, or just behind it, are raucous comedies. Their protagonists are American civilians who learn that there is adventure to be had and money to be made by flying to a war zone. By far the best of these Middle East meets the Wild West comedies is War Dogs, a trenchant and very funny satire co-written and directed by Todd Phillips, the maker of The Hangover and its sequels. In the film, Jonah Hill and Miles Teller star as bored twenty-somethings in Miami who try their hand at international arms dealing. Much like The Big Short and The Wolf of Wall Street, which also co-starred Mr. Hill, War Dogs is on one level a celebration of those devil-may-care opportunists who spot a little-known way to turn a big profit. Nevertheless, our article argued, War Dogs doesn't shy away from the hard edges of conflict. But the film also asks pointed questions about a system which lets companies profit handsomely from warfare and which lets them falsify bank records in the process. War Dogs stresses that David and Ephraim are a long way from being the charmingly roguish Robin Hoods they think they are. One big problem still looms. As enjoyable and laudable as War Dogs is, though, it does have one thing in common with all the other war films mentioned above: not just the rollicking comedies, but the liberal dramas and the gung-ho thrillers. Its emphasis is squarely on the Americans who visit the Middle East. The people who live there have to stay in the background. It's time for us to recede into the background for this week too. So that's it from our tasting menu, and you can find the full articles and all of our other coverage on economist.com. In London, this is the Economist. <laughs>